Morning, everyone. Well, it's official. The research has been done. The results are in. And singing is officially good for you. Study has shown into residents in a nursing home that they had a uh, significant decrease in their levels of anxiety and depression after taking part in a singing program for a month. So they did another study on people who sang regularly in choirs and they found that the singers rated their satisfaction in life higher than people who don't sing. Even though when they examined the actual life circumstances of the singers, they actually faced problems that were just as bad, if not worse, than the non-singers, but they still felt happier in life. And so it's official. Uh, whether it's singing here in church or whether you like playing Sing Star or whether you're just into belting out a tune in the shower, you are a better person because of it. All of which makes today's Bible passage doubly good for us. Because today's passage invites us to sing. Did you notice that in verse 20? Hezekiah is speaking, The Lord will save me and we will sing with stringed instruments. We will sing. The ESV has, we will play my music, but it's the same basic idea. You get to the end of a very personal chapter all about King Hezekiah and we, the readers are drawn into the chapter with the statement that we will now join in with his singing. But why? Why should we join in just because Hezekiah wants to sing? What's it got to do with us? Well, in order to work out what it's got to do with us, we firstly need to understand why it is that Hezekiah is singing in the first place. And in order to do that, we need to go all the way back and appreciate that even though the chapter finishes with singing, it begins with suffering. Verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says, Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Now, it is worth noting that something a little weird is happening with this opening verse. That phrase, in those days, Hezekiah became ill. In those days. That is a deliberately vague reference to time. And in fact, as the story goes on, what becomes obvious is that the events of this chapter happened before the events of the previous chapter, even though they come after them in the book. So, for example, did you notice in verse 6 when God says that he, quote, will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria? We heard about that last week, didn't we? Remember how the Assyrian army was struck down by God's angel, 185,000 men killed in one night. Remember that? It happened last week. But this week it's being spoken of as if it's still in the future. Isaiah has taken us back in time. If this was a movie, the screen would have been all wavy and we are now in a flashback. That's a little weird. Why is Isaiah doing that? It's basically because we have now, for the first time, stepped foot into a big new section of the book. So if you picture Isaiah as this exercise book, and you open the exercise book to the middle where the staples are, 
Last week we were on that side of it. Today we have stepped foot for the first time into that side of the book. We have entered a big new section and that could be significant because the first half of the book has been dominated by words of judgment. It's been dominated by the threat of Assyria coming as the judgment of God. It's been dominated by talks of punishment and the need for Judah to repent and turn back to God. That's what the first half of the book has been all about. But I wonder if that's what the second half is going to be all about. Is the second half also going to be all about judgment? Or or is the second half perhaps going to be about something different? I wonder why that's... I wonder if that's got anything to do with why we're going to be singing by the end of this chapter. Well, at the very least, what we can say is that Isaiah deliberately chooses to take us back in time and then start off the second half of the book with this particular story about Hezekiah. And that in itself suggests that the mood of the book is about to change because this is quite a change of pace. Up until now, Isaiah's had a very grand focus. It's been all about big international events, uh, uh, armies marching against each other. And we've had chapter after chapter after chapter all about the affairs of different countries. And it's been big scale, global type stuff. And suddenly, this is very private. This is personal. This is intimate. A man is ill, seriously ill, terminally ill. And he's overwhelmed with grief. Verse 2. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. Hezekiah wept bitterly. It sounds like Hezekiah, his faith is only just hanging on by a thread. And yet sometimes it's exactly when our faith is at its most fragile that that's when God's grace can shine all the more brightly. That is certainly the case here, as God grants Hezekiah much more than he asks for. And the chapter very quickly now turns from his suffering to words of salvation. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. Now, this is a remarkable answer to Hezekiah's prayer. God is not only going to heal Hezekiah and thereby extend his life, but God is also going to deliver Jerusalem from Assyria, which is, of course, what we heard about, remember, last week. But, friends, here's the thing to notice. This connection now between Hezekiah and Jerusalem. This is our first clear clue as to why we are going to join in the singing at the end of the chapter. Because by linking the future of Hezekiah with the future of Jerusalem, God is effectively saying that just like he's going to remove Hezekiah's suffering, he's going to remove Jerusalem's suffering. He's enmeshing the two. He's linking the two as God very deliberately is using Hezekiah's experience as a picture, as a, as a parallel for what he intends to do for the rest of his people. And that parallel is further emphasised with the sign that he now gives Hezekiah to prove that he's going to recover. 
verse 7. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps. It's gone down the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps. It had gone down. Now that's a pretty good sign if you think about it. So as to reassure Hezekiah that he is in fact going to heal him, God makes shadows go backwards, back up the stairway of Ahaz. It suggests, given what we now know about the movement of the sun around our sky, it suggests that God must have effectively made the earth go in reverse in its rotation so that shadows actually reverse up the stairs. Did he really do that? That's a pretty bit... I mean, I know he can, he's God, but is that what he did or is it perhaps, I don't know, a more localised sort of... I don't know. I think it's an impressive sign. I'm also thinking that this sign for the healing is almost more spectacular than the healing itself, especially when you get to the end of the chapter in verse 21 and you read that Hezekiah gets healed by a poultice of figs being applied to a boil. Now, a poultice is just a uh, sort of moist, soft pulp which is made out of plants and they often use that sort of stuff back then to put on sores and heels and cuts and stuff like that. So it's a little surprising that after such an astonishing sign that the healing is coming, basically making the earth spin backwards, that the healing itself is something as ordinary as putting a bit of plant pulp on it. It's a nice reminder that there is no distinction between the God of miraculous big events and the more what we would call natural events, as a God is involved in one or the other. Being sensationally healed in a healing service is no different to taking medication that a doctor has given you. In both cases, it's God who does it. He's as much God of prescription ointments as he is God of moving shadows backwards. But we're getting a little sidetracked because the most significant thing about this sign is not how spectacular it is, it is where it happens. Because the shadows going backwards is not just on any stairway. This happens to be on the stairway of Ahaz. Ahaz being the king before Hezekiah, who back in chapter 7, chose not to turn to God for help and it was because of his act of disobedience that the whole mess with Assyria developed in the first place. So think about this. As a sign that God will now deliver the king and Jerusalem, God's now going to make the shadows go backwards on the stairway named after the king whose disobedience resulted in judgment falling on Jerusalem in the first place. I think we're meant to be seeing here, quite literally seeing here, a very visual symbol of God's punishment now going in reverse. And that the judgment that was brought on by King Ahaz, the judgment that has so dominated the first half of the book, that just like these shadows now going in reverse up Ahaz's stairway, God intends to reverse his judgment brought on by King Ahaz. That's been all in the first half of the book. God's going to reverse it all and bring in salvation. And friends, that's a lesson that gets even stronger as we now reach Hezekiah's singing, verse 9. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. I said in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years? 
Now, I know it's stretching it a bit to call this singing because verse 9 says it's just a writing, but it's got a very poetic feel, and by the time you reach verse 20, as we've noticed, he's very clearly singing and he's asking us to join in. But before we get to that again, it's worth noticing what it is that he's singing about. I mean, at first it's all about his distress at being terminally ill. Verse 14 is a good example of that. I cried like a swift or a thrush. I moaned like a morning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I'm troubled, O Lord, come to my aid. But after describing how distressed he was, he then praises God that he's been restored, that he's been saved. Verse 15, but what can I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things men live and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and let me live. He's clearly delighted that God has restored him. But here's something worth noticing. God, uh, Hezekiah can see that this whole incident has in fact been for his good. He's learnt things from this. Did you notice that in the second half of verse 15? I'll walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. He's learnt to walk humbly through all of this. Look at verse 17. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. See, King Hezekiah would never have chosen to have gone through this. But since he has gone, now that he has gone through it, he can see it's been for his benefit. He can see that it's been for his own good. Now, this is sounding a lot like not just Hezekiah, but Judah as well. Especially remember how God has set up this connection in the beginning of the chapter between Hezekiah and Judah. That God has set up this parallel between Hezekiah's deliverance and what he intends for the deliverance of his people. He's been giving us in that what happens to Hezekiah is providing us an insight into what he intends to do for all his people. And just like Hezekiah can now see that his distress has benefited him, so Judah's distress at having gone through God's judgment, it will be in the end for her benefit. Particularly so, because like Hezekiah, Judah's distress will not only come to an end, it will bring in a time of celebration because sins have been dealt with. Verse 17. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of my destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. That is a most lovely image of God putting Hezekiah's sins behind his back. Because once you put something behind your back, you just can't see it anymore. That's what God has done with Hezekiah's sins. Not just some of them, it's very clear. You have put all my sins behind your back. They're gone. As God very deliberately chooses not to look at them anymore. God very deliberately chooses not to consider them anymore. God very deliberately chooses not to register Hezekiah's sins against him anymore. This is a most wonderful thing that God does. And I think it's interesting that in a chapter that has lots of miraculous things happening, really, a terminally ill man is healed. Sounds like the rotation of the earth goes in reverse at one point. And yet as sensational as all that is, the most sensational thing in this chapter is that God would put sins behind his back. Because that's the sort of stuff that will last for all eternity. And that no matter what someone has done, 
God is willingly, willing to self-consciously put it out of his mind and to restore that person back to himself. You got some stuff you'd like God to put behind his back? Well, friends, once again, the way God has set up this parallel between Hezekiah's restoration and Jerusalem's restoration, it's all providing insight into what God plans for his people. That Judah is currently in distress for her sin. She is under judgment for her evil. The whole first half of the book has been telling us that. But now, by opening the second half of the book with this story about Hezekiah, whose sins are now forgiven and who rejoices in being restored back to God, Isaiah is very cleverly providing a parallel, providing a picture of what is in store for Judah. That after her anguish, celebration is coming. And as we will see as we keep reading through Isaiah for the rest of the year, that is exactly what the second half of the book is all about. The first half, it's been dominated by judgment. The rest of it, it's going to be dominated by comfort. The second half is dominated by God's grand plan to move his people out of suffering for their sins and move them into singing about their salvation. And that just what Hezekiah experienced on a very personal level in this chapter, so God's people will experience on a broader level. So, back to verse 20. And the call for us to sing along with Hezekiah. It makes complete sense, don't you think? Because if Hezekiah's movement out of suffering into salvation and singing, if that's a representation of what God's plans are for his people, of course we would sing. Of course we would join in. If anything, you and I, this side of the cross, we've even got more reason to. Because remember, Isaiah's original audience is Judah. The we in the first instance is Judah and Isaiah wants them to sing in celebration in anticipation of things yet to come. That God is planning to do this. You and I sing in celebration of what God has done. We celebrate the fact that God has in fact fulfilled this plan of salvation. It's, It's what Jesus achieved on the cross, isn't it? That when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment that his people deserved so that his people could be forgiven and restored. That for those who are Jesus' people, it really is as if God puts our sins behind his back. And he very, very deliberately chooses not to look on any of the sins anymore, ever again, because of Jesus. Extraordinary. No wonder Isaiah calls on us to sing. The big problem, of course, is that as soon as we leave this building, lots of other things are going to drown out this reminder to rejoice and sing. We're going to go home and we're going to read the Sunday paper, we're going to watch the news, and the things in this world will start to occupy more and more of our thinking. There's going to be a new bunch of bills that arrive in the mail on Monday. There's going to be another assignment at school, a new project at work. And before long, today's reminder to sing and celebrate what God has done for us. Before long, the world will have drowned it out almost altogether. 
Friends, maybe this is the week that would be a good one to consciously seek to counteract that. Maybe this is the week that is the one to get that Christian book off the shelf. You know, the one that you bought but never read. Maybe this is the week to read it. Maybe this is the week to, you know, make sure you don't run out of time for the family devotions after dinner. Maybe this is the week to actually turn the telly off a couple of nights and just read a gospel instead. Maybe this is the morning, maybe this is the morning to actually talk about Jesus with each other over morning tea. Why would we not? Today's chapter takes us into a personal experience of Hezekiah, an experience that Isaiah wants us to know about because it sets us up for the rest of the book. It sets us up with a picture to help us appreciate what God's plan is for his people. It's a plan to replace judgment with comfort. It's a plan to replace suffering for sin with salvation from sin. It's a plan fulfilled in Christ. And so you and I, with even greater understanding, get to sing along with Hezekiah, the words of verse 17, that in his love, God has kept us from the pit of destruction. He has put all our sins behind his back. I reckon that's worth singing about.